things in the future will be less expensive if you price them in Bitcoin. Yes. Houses are getting less expensive yeah. in Bitcoin. Cars are getting less expensive in terms of Bitcoin. Yes. You know, pizza. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, you know, what was it? In 2010, yeah. it cost 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas. That's right. Right? Now, you know, so things get less expensive over time when yes. you think about it in term, if you save in terms of Bitcoin. Yes. As you can simply make that choice to hold your savings, some portion of your savings in Bitcoin, and you can think about your buying and selling decisions in terms of Bitcoin, right? It's a whole new way to look at opportunity cost. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Mr. Brian Estes, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thank you, Robert. Great to have you here. Um, I think last time we did this was in person in Miami. It was about two years ago. Yes. For, right before one of the Bitcoin conferences. Yes, exactly. Uh, we're doing it again, this time not in studio, in home, this time around. Uh, just by way of quick reintroduction for you, you are the Chief Investment Officer of Off the Chain Capital, and you are also the lead executive producer of the God Bless Bitcoin documentary. Um, maybe we could just start with that, actually. what What is the God Bless Bitcoin documentary about? And uh, you were just telling me your moment of inspiration for it. Yeah, so... Um... I guess it was probably three years ago, um, you authored a book, maybe it was four years ago, you and Jimmy and a few other authors mm -hmm. called Thank God for Bitcoin. Um, I read that and it just sparked 
some curiosity because that's the Christian view mm -hmm. of Bitcoin. And I was just curious, like, I wonder what the other world religions say mm -hmm. about this. So I um, started doing some exploration and looked at, um, you know, talked to some Jewish rabbis and some Muslim clerics and Buddhist monks and Hindu swamis. And, mm -hmm. and it, it came very, very clear, um, you know, that the world's religions kind of say the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so we thought we'd make a documentary. I, I'm not a good writer, but I'm a visual learner. So mm -hmm. I talked my wife into allowing you know, us to allocate some time to make this documentary called God Bless Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So it's basically about you know how the current monetary system is unjust and that Bitcoin could be a solution for that. Mm -hmm. Um, we go through the FUD, that you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's propagated about, you know, from the media and you know through governments about, you know, Bitcoin, and then we dive into the moral and religious case mm. of why the world should be on a Bitcoin standard. And so we we learned a lot. We've been doing working on this for two years. Um, we hired a Emmy-nominated filmmaker mm. to help us with this. Um, you know, all in, you know. We were anticipating like a $2 million budget, mm -hmm. um, but we did, ended up doing 60 interviews um, all over the world. And um, and we've put about a million dollars of graphics and animations wow. in the movie. So we're like $4 million into this wow. in two years. So we're ready to get it out. And, you know, my, the goal is not to make money off of it. The goal is to maximize viewership. Mm -hmm. And so we're working through that model to make sure that it's a good good balance between, you know, generating some revenue to, yeah. you know, to pay us back versus, sure. you know, maximizing the the eyeballs on it. So that's great. What is the distribution gonna look like on that thing? Is yeah, so documentaries Netflix? usually go through a company called Gravitas. Okay. Um so I looked at them and they're not a good fit because they, they basically take control mm. of the movie and I don't want to do that. And we you know, um, Amazon expressed some interest through um, their distribution network, but they want to buy the movie mm. and I don't want to sell it because mm. they may not ever put it out or right, if they own right, it. Right, right. So I don't, I don't want to do that either. So I, I hired a consultant and we're working through like trying to figure out what the distribution would be. Gotcha. So there's different, there's like TVOD and SVOD and all these acronyms mm -hmm. out there. And so basically what we're looking at is for the first, you know, couple months it'll be pay you know you have to pay for it mm -hmm. through like apple tv or amazon prime or something like that and then um you know if we put it on netflix they'll require an ex exclusivity to that mm -hmm. i don't want to do that either because i want it everywhere yeah because you know um they only have i think around 200 million subscribers but there's 7 billion people you know, around yeah. the world that would yeah. have access to this information so we're we're just trying to figure out what the mass distribution mechanism is. So is uh is self publishing on YouTube and all? Yeah, yeah, we could do that. Okay. Yeah, that'd be down the road though, because okay. that's basically free. Yeah, we could put on you YouTube with commercials. It? Can't you charge it on YouTube though? I've seen like um, the documentary Fantastic Fungi. I think that's what mm -hmm. they ended up doing. Mm -hmm. They self published on YouTube, but yeah. they, but you have to pay for it. Yeah, that, that's what we're doing. We're yeah. putting on different platforms to. But, you know, the number one criteria is that we don't want it to be exclusive to that platform. Mm. So to maximize reach. Yeah, we want to maximize yeah. reach. Yeah. Interesting. So what, I mean, I imagine you learned a lot going through this documentary. Um, 
I, you know, in the book, thank God for Bitcoin, we really looked at Bitcoin as honest weights and measures, which is something that's spoken about often in the Bible. But there's this other concept of, um, well, let's just go through it, right? The different moral and religious aspects of Bitcoin. Thou shall not steal. Yeah. So what is it about the current monetary system that violates the commandment of thou shall not steal? Okay, so you, you mentioned honest weights and measures. So we have a Catholic priest in the movie, um, Father Sirico. He runs the Acton Institute up in Michigan. And um, he's been a you know, very um, prominent spokesman for sound money for 30 years. And um, so he actually went to the Dallas Fed, I think back in the 1990s, gave a speech about how the Fed's being unjust yeah. because they're, you know, their money, the money's not sound because they yeah. keep printing more money. And so that goes back to that, you know, you know, you know, unequal weights and measures. Mm -hmm. So basically it's like having your thumb on the scale and that's the way he explains it. Or another way he explains it is diluting the wine with water. Yes. yes right. Yes. so, you know, you could think about our purchasing power when we take our time, our energy and our talent to create dollars yep. and those dollars get more dollars get printed in the future that dilutes the purchasing power of our time, energy, and talent that we yes. put in before. Right. And so that's the same thing as diluting the wine with water. Yes. You're diluting the potency of the wine mm -hmm. with the water. And it's the same thing as diluting your current dollars with future dollars. Yes. And so that's unjust weight and measure. So that's the Christian view. Yes. Right. But you could go on to look at other world's religions. Um, like in the Muslim religion, mm -hmm. um, in the Islamic religion, riba is against the law. It's against the religion. So riba is paying interest or receiving interest. Okay. So, so usury, basically. Yeah, usury. Yeah. And um, so if you look into that, the world's financial system is all based on mm -hmm. paying interest or receiving interest. So there's approximately 2 billion Muslims out there whose the current financial system isn't compliant with a religion. Mm -hmm. And so you look at Bitcoin and Bitcoin is compliant mm -hmm. with the Muslim religion. In fact, there was a Saudi cleric just a few weeks ago, a um, 90 year old Saudi cleric that put out a paper explaining how Bitcoin is, you know, you know, compliant because mm. it, you know, it doesn't violate riba. Right. And so, so we explore that too in the movie. You know, we want you, know, so we dive into these different religions yeah. to see what they, say about that yes fantastic the the watering down the wine i always point people to that book honest money by gary north because he uses that very example he uses a parable of the winemaker to describe the destructiveness of inflation how it actually it propagates these bad incentives where you're basically creating incentives where producers want to deceive their customers he uses the winemaker as an example but it basically permeates every good and service where you see you know, these concepts like shrinkflation, the price of the candy bar keeps going up, but the size of the candy bar keeps going down. And it's um, basically destroying the quality of products and services, while at the same time, it's increasing their prices or either both or uh, one or the other. And so th there's no, you can't hide the consequences of this theft. And, th and I think it's very important that we call it that because a lot of people operate under the delusion that money printing is somehow 
healthy and necessary, but in reality, it's just destroying our commercial relationships. It's destroying the quality of our products and services. Um, Will Cole actually shared an interesting thing. He was having a, a cabin was being built and he was said the guy he was working with to build the cabin was like, he showed up with a box of tools and he goes, no, 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 these are the wrong ones. You have to get the tools that are made before 1970 because those are the ones that work well. They have high integrity and they're strong and they won't break. Everything made after 1970 was garbage. And it's, it's you know, what the fuck happened in 1971.com kind of thing. Maybe it's not that uh, direct of a relationship, but there's there's definitely, at least what I've noticed, things that are ma- like modern furniture even it's cheaper. It's it's not as high quality. It's not as integral. And I, you know, there's some relationship there to uh, the debasement of the money because basically producers don't have an incentive um, to maintain their customers across time. It's just all about these short-term profits um, in the the interest-laden economy. Yeah, and it's obvious too. I mean, just you know, a few months ago I went to um, Panera Bread. Mm-hmm. You get some chicken noodle soup. Mm-hmm. And normally, you know, it's high quality soup and I got it and they were using brown chicken yeah. and, and instead of the white chicken meat right. like they used to. Right. So it's still chicken noodle soup. Yes. But the quality is, Goes down. you know, because they want to keep the same price. That's right. You know, and so they're using lower quality materials. Yes. Um, in the neighborhood I live in, um, there's a lady down the street who was refurbishing her bathroom and um, she ordered 12 inch tile mm-hmm. to, you know, you know, they had it measured out and, yeah. and they, you know, the subcontractor was laying down the tile and they were like short by like 20%. And they're like, <laughs> and they measured the tile and it was 10 inch tile. Wow. So it, it, it was sold as 12 inch tiles, yes. but in reality it was 10 inches. Yes. And so it's like, you, so you need 20% more tile now yes. to finish your space. Yes. And it's like that with our money. We, we need more money to finish our, what we need to do yeah, because it's being diluted. Yeah, that's a great, because that's, so you're diminishing the weights and measures of money and it's actually diminishing the weights and measures of what you're physically using to create your house. Right. So it's, yeah, it's a really bad thing, but there's this, the th- tricky thing about explaining it to people is there's this weird, I call it a cognitive optical illusion because they see the prices of houses going up, the prices of equities going up. And it, there seems to be, it seems like inflation is good because prices are going up. But in fact, it's you have to invert the thinking. It's like, no, the unit of economic perception is actually going down. So it's not that the house is more valuable or more useful. It's just that the dollars you're using to buy it are being depreciated. Right. And people are getting raises now too, right? So yeah. like if you're, you know, if your boss gives you a 5% raise, right. but your cost of living went up 10%, right. You know, you're actually 5% in the hole. Exactly. So, and you know, so people are feeling good, like I'm making more money, but then at the same time, they're, they're feeling like I can't keep up. Yes. Like, why am I working so yes. much? You know, I'm working more hours and I'm, you know, I'm, it's harder and harder to live. Yeah. On paper, uh, yeah. they think they're doing better, but in reality. Right. And worse. so you see that manifested in, you know, credit card balances are at mm-hmm. $1.6 trillion now. You know, student loans are over a trillion. Um, payment or um, uh, loans on automobiles mm-hmm. are over a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, you know, we're, you know, they, people can't keep up. So that's going into debt yes. to, to, you know, to keep up their lifestyle. And yes. that's not sustainable over time. No. And, it, and they, again, not to 
like point blame anywhere. This is just the incentive system itself because if dollars are being depreciated over time, then it's prudent actually to borrow stronger dollars and pay back weaker dollars. It is. So people are just falling into this incentive trap and that, I mean, it fragilizes everything, right? Because if there is an economic shock, you lose your job or whatever it may be, well, you're much closer to living paycheck to paycheck the more indebted you are. That's true at the individual level, corporate level, whatever. And so we were unnecessarily fragilizing the economy through this excess of debt. And it's all rooted in the nature of the money. Yeah. And I don't want to use a triggering word, but you know, it's, it's almost a form of slavery. Yeah. If you think about it, you know, it's not like, you know, like slaves were, you know, yeah. 200 years ago, but you know, it, yeah, if I spend my time and effort and talent to create dollars and I have to pay, you know, 40% in taxes, yeah. You know, I'm 60% free and I'm 40% a slave. Exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, it's yes. not, I'm not 100% a slave, but, yes. you know, and then you add on to that debt and then you're a, you become a, a, a slave to the banks because yes. you have to, you know, because you, know, you borrowed money. Yep. And, you know, eventually what happens, you, you, can't, you don't have choice in your life. Right. Because you have to take this job and you have to take the abuse from your boss and you have to take... You know, you know, you have to take it, yeah. you know, because you don't have choice in your life to quit your job. You don't have the flexibility to go be a free person. Yeah. No, it's a great point. It's, it is a triggering word that I myself have used in some of my writing. It's not chattel slavery, right? It's not as explicit, but the lack, the fact that it's more implicit, I think allows it to be perpetrated and normalized at a much larger scale. So, and because if you boil it all the way down, like... If, you're, if your tax rate's 100%, then 100% of the fruits of your labor are being stolen. That is a slave. So it's like, at what percent of your the fruits of your labor being stolen are you not a slave? Right. Maybe it's a trigger word. Maybe we need a different you know term for the, the continuum rather than the, the discrete slave, not slave. There's a spectrum in between. But it's the same principle, right? It's the fruits of your labor being stolen, your time being stolen. So whatever you want to call that, it's the same thing. It's just a, it's a difference in degree, not kind, basically. I haven't done the math on that, but just think about it. Just try to calculate the number of hours that it takes to pay your taxes and mm -hmm. pay your debt. You know, I multiply that times millions and billions of people around the world. Yeah. You know, where does that time and energy go? It's going somewhere. It's yeah. being taken from me and it goes somewhere. Yeah. Who's benefiting from that? Yeah. Have the banks benefit from it? The government benefits from it? Yeah, you know, so you're, you know, it's. I, I don't think it's a fair system, and you know how this ties into Bitcoin is, you know, it, you know, Bitcoin can't oh, no. be diluted. Right, twenty one million. Right, you know, it's like it's capped. Yeah, so if you store your time and your energy and your talent in Bitcoin, yeah, you have some, you know, certainty that yes. it's um, be the same amount in the future. Yes, exactly. Um. Yeah, it's a it is a triggering topic. I've gone round and round with many people about it. Um, the piece I wrote, "Masters and Slaves of Money," did quantify some of it. I think between 1980 and 2020, the Fed alone, basically by taking the annual expansion of M2, dividing it by the average average hourly wage rate, you could quantify the hours stolen through money printing. It came out to 23 and a half billion hours stolen per year for 40 years straight. Which, if you if you translate that into working, uh, individual working hours, it basically was like enslaving eleven point nine billion people. I think for forty okay. years. Straight. I'm sorry, eleven point nine million, not billion. Yeah. people for forty years straight. 
So it's real. Like it's a real thing. Labor is actually being stolen through money printing. Uh, critics would argue, oh, but the government's spending that money back into the economy. So it's not really being stolen. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense either. Cause like if I steal from you and I go hire someone else, that doesn't mean I didn't steal from you. Mm-hmm. Like I still stole money from you. Even if I go and spend it somewhere else. So uh, I think that's like a non-starter. And where are they spending gonna, that money? They're spending on, on themselves, know. typically. Yeah. And, you know, do, you know they'll, they'll spend it on a military contractor that basically donates back to their campaign. Yes. Yeah, so it's this vicious circle of, yeah. you know, like just impropriety, I think. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, thou, which ties into the next point, I think, thou shall not kill... Mm-hmm. Um, another connection I don't think many people understand. How is money printing related to warfare? And, and what to what extent do you guys go into that in the film? Yeah, so it, that, this was an important part of the film for mm-hmm. me to address. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but when I was 16, car wreck, mm-hmm. left my legs, legs paralyzed. So I've, the last 40 years, I've had to deal with a, you know, a body that's not fully functional, mm-hmm. right? And when I see military people come back from wars and conflict and, you know, their bodies are injured. Mm. You know, I, I feel for them. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think there's a better way of conducting, you know, our, our differences instead of having war and hurting people. And so, you know, Bitcoin helps solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is if you take, you know, we take our time, energy, talent, earn money, government taxes it, and then they go and they spend that money on these, what I think are unjust wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in addition to that, they print more money, which silently steals from us through inflation. Yeah. And they use that money too. So a great example I give is, you know, if the government came to you and said, Robert, I want 30% of your net worth and we're going to go and we're going to go to some foreign country and kill people with it. Mm-hmm. You'd probably say, I'll opt out of that. Yeah. I'm trying to give you 30% of my net worth. Right. But what the government does, what they've done over the past four years, mm-hmm. they printed 30% more U.S. dollars and they conducted wars with those. Yeah. And so basically they did it without your permission. That's right. And so you still have that same $1,000 balance in your checking account, mm-hmm. but that $1,000 balance only buys you $700 worth of goods today. Yeah. So they, they stole it and, you know, it's you just don't recognize it. Yes. And so, you know, that's the point in the movie that, you know, through inflation, through printing more dollars, they're able to go do these wars. And if we were on a Bitcoin standard, then they wouldn't be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're not going to give the government your Bitcoin to go do wars. And and that's the way it used to work. Yeah. You know, when wars were conducted hundreds of years ago, when you ran out of gold, the war ended. That's right. Right. And so now the war's is going to end there. Yeah. We have ever lasting wars yeah. because they just keep printing more and more money. You know, the, you know, the war in the middle East has lasted for what, 20 or 30 years. That's right. It's just never ending. So, yeah. And we, uh, when I ran the numbers up, this was years ago, but at the time, let's say this was in 2020, we had the cost of the war on terror, quote unquote war on terror, which is really just this imperialistic campaign by the U S and the middle East. I think it was $2.5 trillion at the time. By coincidence, we had printed $2.8 trillion in that exact same time frame. So it's like we printed the whole cost of the war, which means we robbed savers to go and blow up people in the Middle East and serve the interests of defense contractors, oil industry, whatever. 
politicians. And at, to your point, it's all being done without permission. So how can we, how can we think that we have any semblance of democracy or participation in the political process when one group can just print money and go do whatever they want without your permission? It's not, it, it really, it undermines the entire principle of democracy, in my opinion. Well, it does. I mean, in, in Bitcoin fixes that, yeah. you know, Bitcoin is the currency of peace mm -hmm. because if you can't print the money, if you can't print more Bitcoin, mm -hmm. then the government can't conduct the war. Yes. So once we, once the world is on a Bitcoin standard, then I think the world would be more peaceful. Yeah. And it, it you know, it's, it's a long, you know, it's not going to happen next year or five sure. years from now, but as, you know, as this transition mm -hmm. from a fiat experiment that we've been on for 53 years, we go back to a commodity based monetary mm -hmm. system. We were on commodity-based money for 10,000 years as humans. Yeah. And it's just the last 53 years we've been doing this fiat. Yeah. And fiat means by decree. Yeah. So it's an experiment we've been going through for 53 years that's failing. Mm -hmm. And once we return to a commodity-based system, and I don't think we're about going back to gold, yeah. I think we're going to Bitcoin as our next commodity-based monetary system, then the world will be a more peaceful place in the yeah. future. Yeah, the by decree, I think if we say that in a more colloquial way, it's do as you're told or else suffer the consequences kind of thing. It's like, that's not a, obviously a good mode of social organization. You wouldn't organize your romantic life in that way, right? Like you need to consent when you date and all of these things. Um, the other thing I've been thinking about this lately too, going down the money rabbit hole for so long, it's not just the kinetic wars that are being funded with printed money. It's also the wars for the human mind. So if you think about all of the propaganda that was put out during the pandemic, right? All of the science and scientific research and, you know, the, the jab is safe and effective and all. Like, my thought experiment was, how many people got the jab as a result of the money printing and all of the psyops and scientific evidence and propaganda that it funded versus how many people would have gotten it without the money printing funding all of those things? So it's almost like printing money is almost like a form of mind control in a way that you can really manufacture public opinion or at least significantly sway uh, social opinion about things by printing money, funding advertising, advertisement campaigns, and performing psychological operations. And you actually get people to change their perception on the world by surreptitiously stealing from them through the printing of money. Yeah, I've never thought about it, but you're 100% right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the margin, yeah. How many, you know, how many people died or were injured yeah. because of the the jab? Yeah. You know, I, I know a lot of people that you know had strokes. Yeah. My clients um, in Jacksonville, Florida, he got the jab, and a week later he had a stroke. Yeah. You know, and you know it's affected his whole life. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. Terrible to think about. Uh. So you also mentioned in the film talking about bitcoin as digital property rights where do you i guess first of all what are property rights in the scope of of this description and, and how does it fit into the context of the film yeah so um we got this from the jewish rabbis mm -hmm. so um rabbi lapin who's um He's in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and Rabbi Karras. Um, so Rabbi Karras is called the Bitcoin Rabbi. Mm -hmm. um, that's his like Twitter handle. So mm -hmm. if you guys want to follow him, but um, this is a point they wanted to make in the movie. 
Because if you look at like, you know, Jews around the world, they were kicked out of Syria and Spain and, Mm -hmm. you know, different countries over the last hundreds and thousands of years. And when they were kicked out of those countries, they had to leave their property behind. They had to leave their land behind and their buildings and their businesses. And, you know, they couldn't take anything with them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Rabbi Lappin makes the point, like, wouldn't the world be a better place if they could have taken their digital wallet with mm-hmm. them, for sure, right? Or if, if they could have memorized their recovery phrase in their head mm-hmm. so they could leave one country, go to a next, and still have their wealth in their head. Yeah. And Bitcoin allows you to do that. You know, I rarely hear people talk about, you know, Bitcoin, you, you could hold Bitcoin in your head. You don't need a digital wallet. Right. Yeah, you don't need a physical device. If you memorize your 10 words, mm-hmm your recovery words, and I think most people can memorize 10 words, Mm -hmm. you could carry your Bitcoin in your head and no one could ever steal that from you. So, and no one would ever even know you had it either. So, you know, so that, that's the point they wanted to make that digital property rights, you know, help people. Yes. You know, if you need to leave, you know, um, one of the, um, um, guys at Swan, um, you know, he, he got, you know, he, his family had to leave the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. They had to leave everything behind. Yeah. And he makes that point too. Yes. If we could have had Bitcoin back then, then they could have taken their wealth with them. Yes. 100%. Um, giving refugees or potential refugees the ability to leave with their purchasing power or some of their purchasing power, not only does that empower people to start a new life elsewhere where they're going to be treated better versus starting from zero, as is typically historically been the case but i think it also is a the 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 war machine that's coming their way there's less to take right if they've gotten rid of things and they've sold it and they've moved on well then there's less of a carrot let's say to that war effort um i think that's that's a very interesting way to look at it well i mean look what the nazis did to the jews yeah in germany you know that yeah they were stealing their wealth their fine art and their gold and their yeah possessions you know as they left the country or that's right. they killed them yeah so. and they were increasing that tax rate too right at first it was like 50 percent of whatever they tried to take out of the country i've heard so many interesting stories yeah, about this yeah. they kept increasing the tax rate to leave with whatever wealth and so um I, f- I forget who this was it was a jewish guy he had his wife fashion coat hangers out of precious metals and so she like basically stocked her closet and that's how they got precious metals out of the country. So people had to get more and more creative with, with how to get their purchasing power out of the country, basically. Um, I had a conversation recently with Saifedean, and he takes it a step further, saying that we have such a preoccupation with land and owning land precisely because we've never had, or we haven't consistently had a sound store value asset, which makes sense, right? Like a lot of people versus holding their savings in dollars, today we'll hold real estate instead because you can't, what do they say, own land, they're not making any more of it. So he thinks that by virtue of having access to something like Bitcoin, that our obsession with owning land might actually be dissipated and we wouldn't have uh, quite so many territorial disputes uh, just by virtue of people being able to own something that's not easily confiscatable, but is highly portable. Yeah. You don't have to put all your savings in the land. You can put it in, you know, in some of this digital property or digital money as well. I think that's an interesting way to think about it. Like yes. the, the, one of the other points the Rabbi Karras wanted to make too is about, it's called the Hestashowitz. Okay. So, um, hopefully I'm saying that correctly. 
But basically, it's a chain of descent in the Jewish religion. Mm-hmm. And so he compares that to a blockchain, actually. Mm. So, you know, the, the rabbis, they're, you know, they provide the node and the proof of work mm. to verify this chain of descent. Mm. And so he says it's very, very similar to a blockchain. Mm. And so he makes that connection between the Jewish religion and blockchain technology. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that was an important point. The word, in the the word uh, religion comes from the term religio, which actually means to link back. And so I thought that was an interesting parallel to, well, it's what it's blockchain is, right? It's yeah. basically linking back to the, the, the uh, what's the originary block called? Genesis block. So, yeah, maybe not religious in the sense of belief at a higher power as we traditionally conceive it, but there definitely is a linking back element to Bitcoin and to religion itself. You mentioned also in the film Buddhism as a decentralized religion based on algorithms. I would love to hear. Yeah, the, the only thing I, I really knew about Buddhism before doing this movie is I took a religious studies 101 class in mm-hmm. college and just learned the the basics. Um, but when we interviewed, um, you know, when the Buddhist experts out in San Francisco, um, he made it very clear. Um, Buddha, you know, the, the Buddha himself is not like the God. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's just there as a figure, but the religion itself is decentralized. There's no one with power in mm-hmm. the Buddhist religion. So it's everybody together. Right. And then there are certain rules that are said, if you follow these rules, you'll have a good life. Mm. And so those rules are like algorithms. Mm. So and that's kind of like Bitcoin too, Yeah, right? It's decentralized. There are certain rules in Bitcoin, yeah. 21 million, yeah. 32 halvings, yeah. you know, um, you know, a block every 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these, these rules are set forth in the code of, of Bitcoin. And so the Buddhist religion is kind of like that too. It's a yeah. code. And if you follow this code, you'll have a good life. Yeah. And we can relate that back to Bitcoin too. If you follow Bitcoin, yeah. then maybe you'll have a good life with that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll definitely insulate yourself from theft. Um, you also seem to learn a lot getting into Bitcoin. I don't know what, I guess just because it's such a mysterious thing that we all end up in this rabbit hole of like, what is money? What is this? What is that? And Bitcoiners in general seem to be very curious, very intelligent very ethical people. Um, yeah, I, I, I was born very curious. I used to drive my dad crazy asking yeah. questions all the yeah. time when I was little. And so when I first learned about Bitcoin, I was probably the biggest skeptic in the world. Yeah. So coming from traditional finance over 20 years in the industry, um, when I, I, I saw Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss on CNBC when Bitcoin was like $98. Yeah. You know, Andrew Ross Sorkin was interviewing him yeah. on CNBC, you know, sub $100. And, um, I was like, man, this is a pump and dump scheme. So it's like <laughs> internet scam, yeah. you know, and I watched it go from a hundred to 1200. Then it crashed when Mt. Gox got hacked. Yeah. And that's as a value manager, value investor. That's when I got interested when yeah. it dropped 70%. And after I dove into it, it just clicked. I just understood. Yeah. And for the last 10 years, I've just been feeding my curiosity. Like, yes. you know, just learning as much as I can about this. And, you know, it, you're right. It, it is a rabbit hole and like, there's really no stop to it. And it's bottomless. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, you know, on, on the way up from, um, Orlando, I was listening to Lynn Alden's new book, yeah. and money. Yeah. And I mean, she makes great points about the history of money and yeah, it's, 
Now, I, I read a book called from Niall Ferguson. Okay. Um, this is probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, basically about that, the history of money. Yeah. And, you know, this is pre Bitcoin. And, um, you know, that, that got me interested too. Like what, like your show, like what is money? Yeah. You yeah. know, and Niall Ferguson in his book goes through the history of money. Okay. And what's the title of that book? I think it's called the history of money. History of money. Okay. Niall Ferguson. Okay. He's a former, um, Oxford or Cambridge professor. Yeah. Um, he has a, I think he has a foundation now he's starting, he's one of the founders of the university of Austin. Okay. The new like independent college okay. thing that they're building down there. Um, but yeah, so he's, you know, but, the, but that, but there's also a PBS documentary. I think it's eight, eight series, you know, eight, you know, yeah. segments. And, um, yeah, I read the book, watched the series they're, they're both really good. Gotcha. I was the same way as a kid, by the way, just incessantly asking my mom questions. And I think she got really tired of it and was like, <laughs> you just have to go read now. Like, <laughs> So, which is good. She got me into reading early, but Bitcoin has been so satisfying to me in that respect because I just get to completely like ask as many questions and nerd out as much as I want. And you somehow it always ties back into Bitcoin. I don't know how that is, but it's, um, it is strange and intellectually satisfying at the same time in that it's kind of limitless. It's a limitless place to channel your curiosity there. You never find the bottom, which is wonderful. Um, you also talked about, oh, you mentioned this earlier, though, the Hinduism, the ultimate goal is moksha? Moksha. Moksha. Did we mention that earlier? No. No, we used, used the Jewish term instead. I'm sorry. So, um, so moksha, so we interviewed, um, uh, he's the chief HANA officer at ZepPay. Okay. ZepPay is the largest crypto exchange in India. And, um, you know, he did a great job. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a big star in the movie. Um, but his point was that, you know, through new Hinduism, you know, being a free person is the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Freedom is the ultimate. Yeah. Like it's the highest value. Highest. That's the the highest you can get is, is freedom. And, um, and Bitcoin allows people to be free. Mm -hmm. And so we explain that in the movie too. We, you know, we go through, you know, the Hindu religion and how it helps people be free and Mm. how Bitcoin relates to that. Yeah. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about freedom recently, and there's this, I guess there's, I would say there's a impoverished view of freedom where it's just this I get to do whatever I want, sort of like absolute self-direction thing. But when you get deeper into libertarianism, I think you, I would call it something more like 
rational self-interest or even you could say something more philosophical like submission to truth, which is to say something like with private property rights, my self-interest ends where your self-interest begins, right? Like we have this code that we both abide by. You keep what you earn or acquire justly and I keep what I earn or acquire justly. And if we both do that, then we create this reality of more productivity, more peace, more human flourishing. So there's a there's a truth to that social code. There's no other way to structure it to make it better. So it's not just subjective or arbitrary, and it's not just about the individual. It's actually about the collective. And so that's been a strange journey is like getting my head around that. It, there's a, the, the analogy I've used before is like, driving on the road obviously we all here in the u.s we all drive on the right hand side of the road that's limiting our freedom right it's purely free i could drive on the left i drive on the right everyone does whatever they want but if you did that well no one would get anywhere right the roads would just be clogged with car accidents but by submitting to the truth that if we all drive on the right hand side of the road that we can flow traffic and flow more seamlessly we actually gain more freedom collectively and that we don't have to deal with endless car accidents that's like a, a version of that. So it's like a, it's a rational self-constraint or a rationally imposed self-interest. I mean, just to build on that a little bit too, it also takes trust too. Yeah. You know, right. If you're driving 55 or 60 miles down the road and there's someone coming the opposite way, yes. you're trusting that person's not to pull over to your lane and exactly. go ahead on into you. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, and that, you know, goes back to Bitcoin as a trust network. Yes. Like it's, you know, we have to trust the system. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a strange one because the, Bitcoin's also described as like a trust minimization system. So it's like, it is very much like that, but Bitcoin almost forces you to stay in your lane or at least incentivizes you to stay in your lane where it's not, you're not just trusting the guy, which we do that all the time. Obviously we just trust. Actually that works because when people are driving, they are incentivized to stay in their lane because they don't want to have a head on collision with you. And so Bitcoin does something sort of similar, like it incentivizes you to stay in your lane or tell the truth versus deviate from the system rules. Well, I, I think it was the Economist magazine, maybe four or five years ago, had Bitcoin on there, said the trust machine. Yes. And yeah. I mean, that's what it is, it's a trust machine. Yes. Shifting trust from people and institutions, though, to mathematics and cryptography which is much more trustworthy. Yeah, so we don't have to trust each other. Yes. We could trust the algorithm, trust yes. the software. Yes. And that's where that word gets tricky because it's like a trust-minimized system actually nurtures more interpersonal trust because we don't need to depend on each other to not break the system, basically. Right. Uh, yeah, the, the trust ones. You almost have to distinguish between interpersonal trust and like systemic trust. And Bitcoin is, offers very high integrity systemic trust, so we don't need interpersonal trust as much, which paradoxically allows us to have more of it. Yeah. I mean, it, so it, I mean, if you want to dive into that, I mean, you go back to when we as humans developed, we live in tribes of 100, 150 people. Mm -hmm. So you could trust the people in your tribe. Yeah. Because if they did something that was untrustworthy, right. they were kicked out of the tribe. Exactly. Right? So, but as we grew into cities and countries and more people, you know, it's, it's hard to trust a stranger, right? right? Cause you don't have that. The reputation. That should, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The reputation that follows. So, you know, what used to happen, you know, hundreds of years ago, you would get a letter of like, you know, someone would give you a letter to take with you, mm -hmm. you know, like Benjamin Franklin, yeah. you know, like introductory letter and you'd go to a different country and someone is vouching for you. Mm -hmm. Right. So that creates that trust. 
um, you know, Bitcoin is like, you know, goes back to what we just talked about. It's, it creates that trust system yeah. so that you could do business with friends that you trust, but you could also do business with strangers. Yeah. And you still have the same amount of trust in yeah. the system. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, very strange. Again, one of these things where the Bitcoin rabbit hole takes you is like getting underneath words. It's like, well, what do you mean by trust? Is it systemic? Is it interpersonal? Um, okay. Towards the end of the God Bless for Bitcoin documentary, you naturally go to what the future could look like on a Bitcoin standard. Um, without spoiling the ending, what would you say the future looks like? Yeah, I think the consensus is that, you know, eventually the fiat system is, you know, diluted so much that fiat dollars are in fiat euros and mm -hmm. fiat yen. They're, they're just not worth anything in the future. Yeah. So eventually, I, I kind of explain it like, if you think about Bitcoin as being a black hole, it sucks in the value. Mm. Um, so instead of sucking in light, it sucks in value. And so there's today there's about $800 trillion worth of investable assets. Mm. So you look at real estate, fine art, stocks, bonds, M1, M2, mm. you add all that up, it's about 800 trillion. So the question is what percentage of that 800 trillion will Bitcoin capture? Mm. So if it's 10%, that means Bitcoin's worth $4 million. Mm -hmm. So I think 10% is the minimum. Yeah. Uh, you know, because Bitcoin's the best form of money humans have ever created. It's the best store of value yep. humans have ever created. So I think it actually sucks in maybe half of all the value yep. in the world. You know, I would say today, but sure. in the future. So sure. 20 years, 50 years down the road, 100 years down the road. I, I think, you know, I, I think half is probably the right amount. Yeah. That's, uh, so what's Bitcoin worth then? You know, you come up with. You know, 20, 40, 80 million dollars of Bitcoin. In today's dollars. In today's dollars. Yes, yeah. exactly. But obviously in that world, it would no longer be priced in dollars because dollars would be irrelevant or probably non-existent at that right. point. So then you get it to, since Bitcoin can't be printed, yeah. no matter, you know, how much demand there is for Bitcoin, you can't create more of it. And you divide that by, you, know, you get Bitcoin's really worth infinity. Mm -hmm. If you, if you really dive deep into it what's the value well it's actually infinity there's it's ultimate value so yeah it's one twenty one millionth one bitcoin is one twenty one millionth of all the goods and services that human beings will ever create right so i guess not all so there's this old i think this is from an old jewish text and it says you should keep one third of your wealth in cash one third of your wealth in your business one third of your wealth in land and so my, and this is a matter of high speculation, obviously, we're just talking about what uh, Bitcoin could ultimately do to the world. I think one of the things is that bonds, government bonds go away, right? I think largely governments go away as a result of Bitcoin, at least centralized power structures, centralized, federalized states go away. We'll probably still have local government, which is to say Bitcoin makes government local again, which is a good thing. But with that, I think bonds sort of go away as an asset class. So that eight hundred trillion then gets contracted to, I think, what are bonds? Two hundred trillion, maybe, in the world today, somewhere in that neighborhood. So call it five to six hundred trillion dollars of investable assets. I think if Bitcoin captures a third of that, consistent with that old uh, mm -hmm. Jewish edict, that feels about right. You know, like maybe like a third equities, a third real estate, 
uh, and a third cash. But the other thing is, is that by making, obviously by uh, dissolving centralized states and making theft in general much more expensive, it should also radically increase human productivity. So our total wealth creation should go way up. So global GDP would, I don't know, 10x, 100x, who knows? Uh, and Bitcoin would always capture like a third of that. And of course, it's again, highly speculative, but that's kind of how well, it makes sense. Because if you look at the digitalization, when you go from analog to digital, mm -hmm. it goes up 10x. Yeah. So when we did that with um, cameras, mm -hmm. so we used to take photo film cameras, right? Yeah. And when we went to digital, the amount of pictures that were taking, taken went up more than 10x. Same thing with international phone calls. We used to pay for long distance. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know if you remember that, but I do. I remember really? paying yeah. long distance phone bills. Well, why don't we pay long distance phone bills anymore? It's because there was a piece of software created called Voice Over Internet Protocol, mm -hmm. EOIP, and that put MCI and WorldCom and AT&T long distance out of business mm -hmm. because it was free yeah. to do a phone call now. You'd have to pay a long distance company. So when we went from copper cable long distance phone calls, the internet phone calls, the amount of international and long distance went up exponentially. Yes. So whenever you go from analog to digital, when we go from analog money to digital blockchain, Bitcoin money, the, the productivity is going to skyrocket. Yes. yes. So, you know, we've, we've been restricted by this fiat system. Mm -hmm. And so you can even go back like 400 years ago. And you look at when we separated money or we separated state from religion, mm -hmm. right? After religion was taken out of the state control, mm -hmm. then we were able to do autopsies, like study the body. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do that for hundred years ago. It was against the religion to, you know, do an autopsy yeah. or like figure out how the body worked, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned this earlier about this conspiracy theory about the flat earth. Yeah. Well, I mean... You know, the the religions were saying the earth was flat. <laughs> and once you separated religion from the state and Columbus could go and prove the earth was round, no. then, you know, that, you know, that got dismissed. Yeah. Um, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, you know, proved, you know, about the stars, you know, that yeah. the sun is the center of our solar system. Yeah. The earth isn't the center of the solar yeah. system. So, you know, because of science, because you separated state from religion, we were able to prove that the sun was the center. Yeah. Yeah. I think Copernicus maybe was the original heliocentric guy. Is it Copernicus? Could be wrong about that, but your, yeah. to your point, it's well taken. There were certain ideological territories that we could not go into because of religious restriction. But then once religion was separated from the state, that we gained more freedom. And with more freedom came more discoveries more innovation, more human flourishing. Yeah. So just think about what's going to happen once we separate money from the state. Right. You know, all the economic freedom and activity we'll have yes. once the government isn't controlling our money. Yeah. 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 The strength of private property rights really seem to be key to so much and we can't get out of our own way and that the temptation is just too high for people to take other people's stuff. So you need a system, right, that keeps you in your lane, as we were saying earlier. So we were just touching on like what the future could look like on a Bitcoin standard, um, you know, specifically how valuable Bitcoin could be, obviously highly speculative, but to bring it back down to earth a little bit, um, you've also been doing some work with 
RFK, presidential nominee here in the United States, um, focusing on his potential Bitcoin policy. One aspect of which is why he would make the conversion of Bitcoin to U.S. dollars tax-free. And there are a few different angles to this um, that I'm, I was hoping you could share with us. Sure. Yeah, so um, just to make it clear, I'm not a spokesman for RFK. Yep. not part of the campaign, but I was asked to help with the policy yep. around Bitcoin. So, um, you know, it was David Bailey, Perry Ann, Boring, and I. Um, we helped develop the policy around, you know, for RFK. So one of the ideas that we proposed was that you make Bitcoin tax-free. So the conversion from Bitcoin back into dollars would not have a taxable ramification. Mm. So there's a couple reasons for that. So one of them is the right to privacy. So right now, if you sell Bitcoin, you have to report it to the IRS and tell the IRS what you bought the Bitcoin for, what you sold it for, and how it was spent. So there's no right to financial privacy with that system. Mm -hmm. So by making Bitcoin tax-free, now you've restored the right to privacy, mm -hmm. right to financial privacy. Right. So that's one reason. Another reason is it puts us on a level playing field with other countries where Bitcoin's already tax-free. Mm -hmm. So Germany, Singapore, um, Hong Kong, Switzerland, Portugal, Bitcoin's tax-free. When you say when we say tax-free, you're basically saying you're legally recognizing Bitcoin as a usable currency. You are right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and in, in, you know, in Germany, they they use the euro, and so not all the European countries, you know, identify Bitcoin as tax-free, but Germany is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so is Portugal. And so, if you have a euro or you have Bitcoin and convert that into euros you don't have to report that to the German government as mm. the taxable income. And so in Germany, you could use Bitcoin as currency. Mm. You could spend it without having to report that to the government. Mm. And so, you know, we need to be on that, the United States of America needs to be on that level playing field because we're given Germany and Singapore, Switzerland, Portugal, yep. you know, these other countries an advantage over the United States. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need to, catch up with them. Yes. And so that's the second reason. Um, and then there's the reason for, you know, you have to think about, you know, we have Bitcoin ETFs today. Mm -hmm. So BlackRock, Fidelity, you know, all the, you know, asset manager, you know, Franklin Templeton, mm -hmm. they're accumulating a lot of Bitcoin today. Mm -hmm. So if you create a financial incentive to hold Bitcoin directly, like mm -hmm. you and I could self-custody or hold it at Coinbase or wherever you want to hold your Bitcoin at. Um, if you hold Bitcoin directly, then that's tax-free. Mm -hmm. But if you hold Bitcoin through an ETF through BlackRock, BlackRock's a security. Mm -hmm. So that's taxable if you realize a gain on your right. taxable ETF. So you, by, by creating um, tax-free structure for owning Bitcoin directly, you create that financial incentive mm. for us to own it directly. So it keeps the Bitcoin out of the hands of BlackRock right. and out of the hands of the asset managers and keeps it decentralized mm. rather than a centralized control of asset managers. Mm. And I think that protects Bitcoin over the long run. So a financial incentive to self-custody and distribute ownership concentration versus everyone buying it through an ETF, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, by 
creating that financial incentive to do that, um, it, I think it protects Bitcoin, mm-hmm. keeps it decentralized, and you know, instead of concentrated in the hands of the asset managers. Yeah, that's a great point. And then it also is just acknowledging Bitcoin's utility as money, right? Like it doesn't make sense to charge a capital gains tax every time you move in and out of Bitcoin, whether it's into another currency or another good or service, because that's what the purpose of money is, right? Is to be the medium of exchange. If you tax it every time it moves, you're creating unnecessary friction in the network. Well, that's why they're doing it. Of course, that's why they're doing it. But it's, again, one of those things that's just uh, hamstringing human productivity. It's like, just let people choose whatever money they want for their transactional purposes. Like you said, the right to privacy, well, right to free speech, right to free expression. Why are you not, why don't we have the right to choose whichever way we want to express ourselves monetarily, right? Either in terms of saving or spending. And it's, it's whatever mediates the exchange successfully. It doesn't make sense, I think, to tax that. It's important to point out too, back in 2014, when the IRS declared Bitcoin as property mm-hmm. and started taxing it, that didn't go through Congress. Right. So Congress is Congress sets tax policy, mm-hmm. and the IRS did it just out of the blue. Mm-hmm. We're in tax Bitcoin as property. Yeah. Never went through Congress, and so I think there's a fight there that could be had. Yeah. Um, where you know Congress could step in and say, you know, we're not to, you know, we think the IRS is wrong, and yeah. you know, pass a law. But when I brought this up to Mr. Kennedy, you know, he said, well, if it was never passed through Congress, it's not a law. Mm. So first day as president, I could executive order that and make it tax free. So I think that's one of the reasons people should look at Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as president, because if he becomes president with an executive order on the first day, well, you know, he could make Bitcoin tax free. Yes. I mean, which would be a big step toward just having Bitcoin adopted as money because you're removing those barriers again. It's so obvious. I'm surprised we haven't done that, especially get, seeing that other countries have done it. They just, they have a leg up on us, basically. Mm-hmm. Another thing RFK has talked about doing was backing U.S. debt with Bitcoin and a basket of other commodities. What's the thinking behind that policy? Yeah, so when I was meeting with him in Memphis, um, he was telling me the story about um, black neighborhoods and how they're struggling right now because of interest rates, it's post COVID, mm-hmm. interest rates are up. So business went down and then with interest rates being high, they're having a hard time, you know, meeting their debt obligations. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just, you know, I just kind of out of the blue, I said, well, there's a way to fix that pretty easily. And you know, he's like, you know, being curious, he was like, how do you do that? And I was like, well, you lower interest rates. I mean, the best way to do that is start backing our debt with something of value. Mm. And so if you go pre-1971, um, before we went off the gold standard, when the government issued out debt or when anybody issued out debt, it was repayable in dollars. Mm-hmm. It was also repayable in gold. Mm-hmm. You know, There was a gold covenant built into the debt. And so you could change the covenants of the debt. Right now, when the US government issues out bonds, it says that in 10 years or 20 years or whatever the term is, we will pay you back in dollars. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like that. That's right. You could change the covenant and say, yeah. we'll pay you back 99% in dollars and 1% of it in Bitcoin. Yeah. And so if you issue out a $10,000 bond, you could put 
$9,900 of it in dollars mm -hmm. and take $100 of that and buy Bitcoin with it. Mm -hmm. And in 20 years, what's that $100 of Bitcoin worth, mm -hmm. right? So maybe it's worth more than $100 yeah. in the future. And so if you back our bonds with a percentage of Bitcoin, then it creates more demand for the bonds, mm -hmm. which if demand goes up, then the yield yes. goes down. The price goes up, yield goes down. So it lowers interest rates mm. by backing our debt with Bitcoin. Mm. And so you can't go from zero to a hundred, but you can go from zero to 1%. Yeah. And then the next year make it 2% and then 3%. And if you do that for a hundred years, so if you think about a hundred years from now, our bonds are backed 100% by Bitcoin. And what Mr. Kennedy wants to do, make it a basket of commodities. Yep. You have Bitcoin, gold, platinum, palladium, yep. you know, silver, yep. you know, whatever the basket is. But if you start backing our debt with hard assets like mm -hmm. Bitcoin and gold, then eventually it restricts the Federal Reserve, the ability to issue well, odd debt, debt. Yeah. and the Treasury from issuing odd debt. So basically this is the path, it's the 100-year plan to take us back to the pre-1913 central bank creation. Right. And so if we can go back to before the central bank was created, you know, if you think about it back then, pre-central bank, we didn't have a federal income tax either. That's right. So yeah. there's all sorts of ramifications right. to restricting the money printer. Yes. And one of them is lower taxes. Yeah. So I think that if we sit, you know, if Mr. Kennedy comes in, sets forth the hundred year plan to back our debt gradually over mm -hmm. time with hard assets, it not only restricts us, you know, the ability to borrow money, mm -hmm. but it also reduces taxes in the future, which makes us more free, like we talked about earlier. Absolutely. That I they could also offer mixed different types of bonds, right? Can you have like the ninety ten Bitcoin US dollar bond? You could have this basket of commodities slash and then just kind of let the market sort it out. Presumably, people would favor the the bonds that are backed with actual commodities or substantial assets because that's much less. There's a much higher degree of confidence that you're going to get repaid in something substantive versus just printed dollars, um, which you have no idea what the value of those things are going to be at the time of repayment. This would also create more demand for commodities and Bitcoin, obviously, as those commodities and Bitcoin are purchased to back these bonds. So it seems like it's attacking it from both sides, right? You're sort of reducing demand for US dollars and increasing demand for these commodities. And it just sort of unwinds the entire central bank scam over time. Yeah, we mentioned this earlier that you know, for 10,000 years, we as humans were, we used commodity-based money. Yeah. So it used to be salt and stones and like wampum and mm -hmm. things like that. And then you know, gold and silver naturally appeared as like, you know, we naturally opted into the gold and silver system because it was the best form of money, you mm -hmm. know, we create. And now Bitcoin is, in my opinion, the best form of money humans have ever created. So I think we eventually opt in. Just, I think it's just natural. Yeah. You know, we as humans will naturally opt into this Bitcoin system once people understand it. Yeah. Right now, only about 1% of the world understands it. But as the other 99% of the world through work that you do through your, you know, your podcasts and your, you know, my wife calls it betangelizing. <laughs> um, as you betangelize yeah, 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 about, yeah, you know, Bitcoin, yeah. you know, the, the world understands. Yeah. And as more and more people understand this, 
you know, we'll just opt in. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, I don't want to have a hundred percent of my money in dollars. Maybe I'll have 90% of my money in dollars and 10% in Bitcoin. Yeah. And then eventually you just get more. And, and over more. time that flips. And over time, yeah. yeah. It's just natural progression. And I don't think there's really anything that could stop it. Yeah. You know, we slow down. Governments sure. are trying to slow it down. Banks are trying to yeah. slow it down. So, and that's fine, but I, they can't stop it. And, and over time it just, it, it just occurs. Yeah. This is because you're fighting the tide of individual self-interest, right? Because you're basically saying what Bitcoin is, is let people keep what they rightfully earn, right? And keep it in something that can't be expropriated by others. So there's this very strong game theoretic force basically that drives people into it. And although I agree that the, the evangelizing and the podcasting, like these things help spread the message. I still think kind of ironically, the ultimate evangelizer for Bitcoin is going to be the state, right? The more they print money, the more they try to regulate, confiscate, control, like the tighter they grab, the, more, the quicker individuals slip between their fingers into Bitcoin. It's like, because people don't like to be controlled or robbed or manipulated. So as you try to apply that pressure, they figure out Bitcoin, right? As a means of, of self-preservation. I think Justin Trudeau was the best Bitcoin salesman ever yeah, in that exactly. end, right? right? I mean, a couple of years ago when he was cracking down on the Canadian truckers, you know, confiscating their bank accounts. Yeah. You know, I mean. Which was just like, declared unconstitutional, I heard the other day. Yeah. I mean, he, he was the best Bitcoin salesman we've ever had. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And China, I mean, so many things. China outlawing Bitcoin mining, right? There was. The longest time there was the FUD about, oh, all of Bitcoin mining is coming, coming out of China. Bitcoin is like a Chinese PSYOP or something. And then what happens, China outlaws Bitcoin, hash rate goes down, what, 40% yeah. in six or eight months. Those miners get unplugged, shipped elsewhere, plugged back in, hash rate is now rebounded, I don't know, four or 500% since then. All-time highs. Decentralized hash rate outside of China, but hash rate is now at a new all-time high. And so all the, every time the state, this is where we do sound like we're in a cult. When, so we say everything's good for Bitcoin, but every time the state tries to harm Bitcoin, it proves that it's anti-fragile by like becoming stronger or hardened through the hostility. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to imagine what can be done to stop it. So where do you think the hash rate's coming from? It can't be the public miners that we know about. I mean, and some, a lot of it's from that, but the, I think there's, I, I really think there are countries or militaries that are mining Bitcoin right now. I would imagine so. I mean, because you're once, it's not a difficult thesis to absorb. That's right. Like if anywhere you have energy production that's not being sold, well, you should plug in a miner. Otherwise you're just letting that, you're letting cash burn basically. So you know, especially in centrally planned economies where they've built all this excess energy capacity. I'm thinking like the Three Gorges Dam in China, you know, all these ghost, ghost cities they have. That's because they centrally planned all that, right? There wasn't a demand for it. That's why they built all of this and it's uninhabited, it's unused. Well, what's the great, the perfect complement to that is you can now sell all of that energy into the Bitcoin mining network. So I would imagine, again, speculation, I don't know, Places that have had excess expansion of energy production capacity due to central planning are probably figuring out, oh, well, we don't have anywhere to sell this energy now, but we can mine Bitcoin instead. And to your point, we've seen how- I might throw this out there. Just, I, don't, I don't know how to figure this out, but maybe one of your listeners does. But if you look at 
um, the U.S. Navy, mm-hmm. and they retire their nuclear ships and submarines, mm-hmm. right? So there's a nuclear power plant on those. Mm-hmm. You could easily co-locate, you know, when the when these ships are retired, yeah. right, they're mothballed. Well, you could easily take those mothballed ships, put some Bitcoin miners on them, <laughs> put those out in sea somewhere, yeah. and be mining Bitcoin with that nuclear reactor, <laughs> right? And I don't know how to track that, yeah. but looking at the hash rate, the hash rate tells me that there's military power mining Bitcoin right now. Yes. And in I don't know where it's coming from, right. but that seems a pretty like a pretty logical place. Like taking these nuclear reactors that are mothballed and reactivate them and go out there and mine Bitcoin. And if you look at seven percent of the Bitcoin network, it goes to a unKYC'd wallet. Mm. So mm. that's a government. Yeah. That's a government mining Bitcoin, put it in their unKYC'd wallet, and it's seven percent of the network. That's $20 million a day of electricity. Wow. So you have to be pretty big entity to afford $20 million a day of electricity. Yes. So I, I think it's government, it's some government out there taking their unused, their mothballed yeah. electricity and, and mining Bitcoin with it. That's a fascinating thesis, makes a lot of sense. And I would say too that if that story is ever corroborated or confirmed, that's going to trigger a gigantic arms race by every other country in the world, right? If, if it was determined the U.S. were doing that, every other superpower in the world would be like, holy shit, we have to also go do that now. And that's, again, back to the game theory. It's like every time you see someone else making use of this money or this network in a way that's advantageous to them, it's an incentive for you to take it more seriously, whether it's you as an individual, as a company, or as a nation state. Right. And Jason Lowry, he, you know, in his book, Soft War, mm-hmm. you know, which you can't get it anymore. By the way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, yeah. software, read that. I mean, yeah. that spells out the incentive for militaries to go out and yeah, be Bitcoin miners. You know, it's, you know, it's a way to protect cyberspace. Just like the Air Force protects the, you know, the air, and yeah. the Navy protects the seas, yeah. you know, you know, Bitcoin protects cyberspace. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating thesis of his. He's been on the show a number of times, and his book is banned. So there's a good signal to go out and read it. Okay, looking at you mentioned the Bitcoin ETFs earlier, which has been all of the Bitcoin news in recent weeks. Um, what does this mean? What did the launch of the Bitcoin ETFs mean for financial advisors and RIAs, which are registered investment advisors? Is that what that stands for? What what did, what did the launch of these products mean for these people? And so like I mentioned, I come from this industry. So for over 20 years, I was a stockbroker, institutional asset consultant, an RIA, <clears throat> an RIA um, learned through Schwab at the time. Um, I exited the industry in 2014 when I learned about Bitcoin. Um, but what it means is that now that there's an SEC, you know, vehicle, approved vehicle that allows people to get exposure to Bitcoin mm-hmm. um, directly. So you can do it through BlackRock, Fidelity, Grayscale, you know, Franklin Templeton, Bitwise um, is a good one out there. And so, and Vesco is another one. So, you know, it gives people the ability to get exposure to Bitcoin through the ETFs. And so, whereas they couldn't do it before because of either self-custody rules or 
they weren't comfortable with Coinbase or a custodian. Now they could do it through a SEC vehicle. Um, so we have to thank Grayscale for doing this, first of all. So Grayscale, for a number of years, fought with the SEC to get their GBTC approved. Mm -hmm. um, it was... Um, it was registered as a SEC reporting company. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is ETF. And for years, that SEC was blocking that. Mm -hmm. And so Grayscale finally sued the SEC. It went to an appellate court. So three judges decided that the SEC was being arbitrary and capricious mm -hmm. and forced the SEC to approve the ETF. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to, they just don't want to approve Grayscale. Right. So they approved a basket of them. So right. there were 11 that got approved, Grayscale being one of the 11. And so now institutional investors have easy access to getting, gaining exposure with Bitcoin through the ETF. Wow. That's a real win for Grayscale because they were also raking in 1.5% fees, right? For well, they were at 2% yeah. and they, re they lowered it to 1.5%. Yeah. So now there's a total bifurcation on the market. Yeah. So Grayscale is the, the GBTC is the largest, most liquid ETF out mm -hmm. there. They have about 550,000 Bitcoin mm -hmm. today in that fund. So it's, you know, if you need to buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin or $10 billion worth of Bitcoin, you could do that through the Grayscale GBTC. If you want to try to sell a billion dollars of Bitcoin through the BlackRock one, mm -hmm. the market's not there. Right. You know, there's only $2 billion yeah. in, in yeah. BlackRock. So, you, you know, the the market's not liquid enough. So what what's the market looks like today is you have Grayscale on one end mm -hmm. and you have the other 10 on the other end. Mm -hmm. The other 10, they're competing on fees. Right. So it's basically a race to the bottom for much, fees. Much lower fees. Uh, the lowest fee out there is Franklin Templeton oh. at one point or 0.19%. Okay. Um, Bitwise, Fidelity... You know, BlackRock, they're all around 0.2%. Mm -hmm. So there's not that much difference between them. Um, but then you have Grayscale out right. there at 1.5%. Right. So why would anyone pay 1.3% more sure. per year? And the reason you would pay that is because you just don't... Liquidity. Yeah, you need the liquidity. You don't want to, you know, cause a dislocation in the market yeah. when you try to sell a large block of yeah. your... Bitcoin exposure. Well, we're seeing massive outflows from GBTC into these other ETFs, right? Due to that fee imbalance. Um, it depends on how you quantify massive. Mm -hmm. There is outflow. Yeah. So, and the outflow, you know, I, I don't even want to call it massive, but it will eventually balance. Right. So Grayscale's making the bet that it won't be 90% of their assets. Right. Because if they would compete on the fee, they would lower it to 0 0.2. Sure. So if you're charging 0.2%, then you know you just cut your you know you, you cut your fee by ninety percent. Right. So by just going to one point five percent, they're betting they'll keep half of their assets. Right. And then they they come out. Why ahead. would they? Why would anyone pay the additional fee? Because at, because you have uh, a gain on it because you don't want to sell it. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, so people, you know, it was selling at a. Discount, and you can't you, know? you can't you can't do like a non-taxable swap from one ETF to another. No. Nope. Because once you go into dollars, you're you're dinged. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, they're, so they're, they're betting on that tax friction, basically letting them keep half their assets roughly. Plus the deep market. Yeah. Plus institutional investors will pay. Right. If you're a trader, you don't care. You're paying 1.5% a year if right. you're trading in and out. Right. 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 You know, if you're in for a few days. And yeah. Out. Yeah. You yeah. Know, if you're a long-term investor that you're on, 
hold this for 20 years, yeah. you really don't want to buy the ETF anyways. You want to buy it direct, you want to buy it direct at you know, one of the institutions who, who don't charge you to custody yeah. Bitcoin. So you know, it's kind of own it direct for free, yeah. own it through a low-cost ETF, or own it through Bitcoin if you're a trader. That's mm. kind of the three places to, yeah. to participate today. Well, it's all good for Bitcoin, again, just that people have more options. Um, so what is your opinion on financial advisors? Why is it you think they should be allocating to Bitcoin? Uh, but I guess pre-ETF launch, there was basically most financial advisors advise their clients not to touch Bitcoin for the most part because they had no incentive to advise their clients to look at Bitcoin. That is now changing, I think, although it hasn't changed completely. You mentioned there's still some some friction in place. So what is your, I guess, pitch to financial advisors in regard to allocating the Bitcoin? Yeah, so, so there's still a number of firms that won't allow their clients to invest in the ETFs. So I might just name them. So these are, you know, um, Merrill Lynch, Edward Jones, Stiefel Nicholas, Wells Fargo Advisors, Raymond James. These are financial advisors and they're firms that these products are on the restricted list. Their compliance said, mm-hmm. you can't allow your clients to invest in these. So even if the client comes to them and says, I want to invest, they won't allow them to mm-hmm. invest. Vanguard's another one of them. Mm-hmm. So whereas Fidelity, Schwab, um, you know, independent RIAs are you know, kind of free to do what they want. Um, you know, you know, some of them are making allocations to them. But my my point to the financial advisors who listen to this show is you need to look at the data. And the data shows that adding a small amount of Bitcoin to a diversified portfolio increases the sharp ratio, mm-hmm. increases the risk adjusted returns. Right. And this goes all the way back six years ago in, in January of 2018 the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis put out a white paper. And in their white paper about Bitcoin, it said that it could be used to diversify portfolios and it had a benefit to portfolios Mm -hmm. to add a small amount of Bitcoin to to do that. And the reason they're saying that is because Bitcoin is valued differently than stocks and bonds are valued. Mm -hmm. So stocks are valued as PE ratio or price Mm -hmm. to book. Bonds are valued based on credit risk, interest rates, Mm -hmm and you know, other factors. Bitcoin's valued as a network. You could use Metcalf's law mm-hmm. to value Bitcoin. Bit- Bitcoin's also valued on what's called a stock to flow model. Mm-hmm. And so you can use scarcity to value Bitcoin. So since Bitcoin's valued differently than bonds and stocks, mm-hmm. when you add a small amount of that to your portfolio, it reduces the correlation. Right. And, and when you do that, it increases the sharp ratio, right, increases right, right. the risk-adjusted returns. And so BlackRock, a few months ago, put out a paper, and it's what's called the efficient frontier. So this is the optimum amount of Bitcoin in a portfolio. And so when you, they used to run efficient frontiers, you would say stocks versus bonds. Yeah, the 60, Where do we, 40, the 60 right? 40, right? If you throw Bitcoin into the mix, what's the efficient frontier of Bitcoin with stocks, bonds, and Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. And BlackRock, you know, this isn't like some podunk investment firm. This is BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world. They say the optimum amount of Bitcoin in an investment portfolio is 84%. 84% 84% Bitcoin. 84% Bitcoin. 
<laughs> and the other 16% should be in stocks and bonds. And so naturally no one's well, put 84% of their money in Bitcoin. But this is one of the reasons I think Larry Fink got so excited yeah. and totally flipped yeah. from being a Bitcoin skeptic to being the, one of the biggest salesmen of Bitcoin in sure. the world today yeah. is because he finally looked at the data. Yeah. And that's all I'm asking financial advisors to do. Yeah. If you're a financial advisor, if you're a fiduciary, if you're a CIO of an endowment or foundation and you've ignored Bitcoin for the last 15 years, yeah. take a look at the data. The data doesn't lie and just, you know, educate yourself so that you could do a good job and, you know, and be a f good fiduciary for your clients. Yeah. That is some very pragmatic bit evangelizing you just did there. <laughs> 84%. That's incredible. Yeah. 84%. So and uh, just Google, Google BlackRock, Efficient Frontier, Bitcoin, 84. And wow. It'll pop up. Wow. So we've gone from the 60, traditional 60 40, which is supposed to be like the best efficient frontier. But by introducing Bitcoin, that 60 40 gets crowded out down to 16%. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin's the other 84. That's incredible. So I guess Bitcoiners aren't so psychopathic then. No. It's just, yeah, that's where we ride all along. Okay, Bitcoin adoption. All right, so one of the ways Bitcoin is described is as the internet of money. It's in the same way the internet is a stack of open source protocols for moving information. We have Bitcoin as an open source protocol for moving economic value. So in many ways, Bitcoin's like an extension of the internet itself or the latest layer of the internet. How do you see Bitcoin adoption mirroring internet adoption, or is it is it faster, is it slower? What is the relationship between the adoption curves for the- Yeah, internet? so we can go back to the 90s, right? 90s, then you know, the 2000, 2010. And you see the adoption of the internet. Mm -hmm. When you overlay the adoption of Bitcoin over that, Bitcoin's growing much faster mm -hmm. you know, than the internet did back in the 90s. And so what that means is today there's around Three to four hundred million people using Bitcoin today, and in 2030, it's projected that'd be close to four billion people. Mm -hmm. And so, for the next six years, we're on this mega trend that of Bitcoin adoption. And when you look at what's called S-curve analysis, mm -hmm. what we went through just over the last couple of years was the shakeout phase. Mm -hmm. So, the shakeout phase is what happens when the unproductive, useless, or, you know, business models that don't work fail. Mm -hmm. And so we saw those fail, you know, so lending Bitcoin fails. So leveraging Bitcoin, borrowing Bitcoin fails. So you look at Celsius, BlockFi, yeah. Genesis, um, you know, a number of other firms that were in that business failed because those business models don't work. Right. And so that was FTX. That was the shakeout phase. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, We'll have the consolidation and where we're at today is in the United States, U.S. households are around 50% exposed to Bitcoin. 50% of U.S. households today have some exposure to Bitcoin. And so over the next six years, that's going to go from 50% to 90%. Mm. And so that's unstoppable. It's we're in this mega trend of mass adoption. And, you know, the next six years look really good for, for Bitcoin because we have the ETFs now. You have direct ownership. Yeah. You can buy Bitcoin through Venmo, through PayPal. And so we have these exit ramps off, you know, built, you know, so we could exit the fiat system. Yeah. And so if we look at what happened a year ago when Silicon Valley Bank failed and a number of other large banks failed, Bitcoin skyrocketed. That's right. And those banks were yeah. failing. 
So I think what's going to happen during the next round of bank failures um, that I think is going to happen because of commercial real estate, mm. you know, problems that are mm-hmm. coming up. Um, I think as the banks fail, people are exiting and, and Bitcoin is the safety net mm. for, for, uh, for most people that are out there. Yeah, the, the adoption curves, they make a lot of sense when, so you consider like the, the adoption curve for the telephone was a certain degree of steepness. But the internet was a much more steep or rapid adoption curve because a lot of the internet infrastructure was built on the back of telephone infrastructure, uh, like like the transatlantic cables and all of these things. So it would stand to reason that the Bitcoin adoption curve would be even more rapid, right? Now that we have all this internet infrastructure in place. And I think that's basically what we're seeing, right? The Bitcoin has been, well, it's the fastest growing asset in human history, but it's also one of the steepest adoption curves of any network-based communications technology. Um, And so on that S-curve, which basically looks like it's flat and then it gets really steep and then it flattens out again at the top, you have kind of like early adopters, then early majority, late majority, late majority at the top flattening out again. And you think we're right at the base of that inflection point? No, we're the, all right, so Bitcoin has been invented in 2009. Yeah. It took 10 years to go from 0% adoption the 10% adoption. Okay. So between 2009 and 2019, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had the 10% adoption. Yeah. So right now we're at close to 50%. And I'm talking about in the United States. Yeah. Worldwide, it's like 1%. And this is this is by population, right? So obviously, I look at households. The households, but we're mm-hmm. way under 50% in terms of total addressable market. Like what Bit- do you mean by that? Bitcoin's a trillion dollar asset. It could oh yeah, yeah. We're not trillion. trying. To, we're talking about yeah. just U.S. households. Yeah. So the Biden administration, um, a year and a half ago, put out their study, and it said that where there were 41 million Americans who owned Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, but that data they were using was two years old. Mm-hmm. So it's really closer to 60 million mm-hmm. today. Um, you know, there's 130 million households. Um, yeah. so, you know, you, you could back, you know, Coinbase has 80 million accounts. Yeah. You know, Robinhood is the third largest Bitcoin wallet in the world. And, you know, we know they have millions of users. you. You could add up all the users yeah. and you get close to 50% of us households gotcha. have, you know, exposure to Bitcoin. And so if it took 10 years ago from 0% to 10% adoption, right. then what S curve means, it takes the same amount of time mm-hmm. to go from 10% to 90%. Okay. So. 2019 to 29, it'd be 90%. Wow. And we're at 2024 yeah. and we're at 50%. So we're halfway up the S-curve. Right? Wow. We're past the, the inflection was 2019. Gotcha. And now we're halfway up the right, steep right. part. And in another six years, we'll start leveling off again. Where do you expect market cap to be in 2029? If we're at ninety percent, so if you use the stock to flow models, Plan B model, yeah, um, I, I I think it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's calling ten very, million dollars very, very controversial. Yeah, yeah, ten <laughs> million dollars of Bitcoin in two thousand twenty nine, two thousand thirty. Wow. Um, you know, Kathy Wood at Arc, you know, she's saying one point four million. Yeah, is her conservative number. Yeah. So I think somewhere between a million and ten is probably the range. Wow, fantastic! I also uh, made the very controversial public price prediction for Bitcoin. I think I said 12.5 million by 2031. 
but the dollar would be so inflated at that point that it would only be a million dollars in 2020 purchasing power. Okay. So, you know, a loaf of bread would be what, what, like $60 in that world, something like that. So again, speculation, we'll see, but. It all um, depends on too, how much money the government, how many, I'm not saying money, how many dollars yeah. the U.S. government prints to? Yes, that's what you're denominating Bitcoin. Exactly. In dollars. Exactly. So yeah, well, even when you say something, it sounds outlandish, like twelve million dollar Bitcoin. But the question you always have to ask yourself is how much purchasing power does each one of those dollars have? Because right. if milk costs a hundred dollars a gallon, well then twelve million bucks, sure, what it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, let's go back eight years. So. Um, yeah, I started buying Bitcoin 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I started buying it at $250. Um, I thought I was really smart and, you know, it hit $1,000 and I sold 50 Bitcoin at $1,000 mm -hmm. to go buy my Mercedes that I've parked it <laughs> right out here. It's a 2016 <laughs> E550 Mercedes mm -hmm. that's worth $2 million now. Right, my eight-year-old car is worth fifty Bitcoin in Bitcoin. Fifty times yeah. forty thousand yeah. is two million, yeah. right? And so, and what's know, it actually worth? That's probably sixteen thousand dollars, <laughs> right? Or ten thousand. It's all beat up. It has yeah. hundred thousand miles yeah. on it. But um, I won't. I'm not. I'm not selling that car. Yeah, right. I'm not. just not selling it. <laughs> so, but if you think about it, so I spent fifty Bitcoin to buy that car. Yeah. You know, eight years ago, I went and looked at a new Mercedes a couple of months ago. Similar make and model, E450. Yeah. Actually, it's a V6 instead of a V8 like yeah. I have now. So I, I would say it's a less, you know, it's a lesser of a car, yeah. right? And that car cost me, would would cost me if I buy it, would cost me two Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Right. It sounds like shrinkflation. Right. So <laughs> like the same car cost me 50, yeah. now cost me two Bitcoin. Right. You know, it's actually 1.75. Shrinkflation in dollars with hyperdeflation in Bitcoin. Right. So like, yeah. you know, so like, so the point is, is that things in the future will be less expensive if you price them in Bitcoin. Yes. Houses are getting less expensive yeah. in Bitcoin. Cars are getting less expensive in terms of Bitcoin. Yes. You know, pizza. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, what was it in 2010? Yeah. Cost 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas. That's right. Right now, you know, so things get less expensive over time. When yes. you think about it in term, if you save in terms of Bitcoin. Yes. And you can simply make that choice to hold your savings, some portion of your savings in Bitcoin. And you can think about your buying and selling decisions in terms of Bitcoin, right? It's a whole new way to look at opportunity cost. Uh, but probably when you bought that car in what, what year was it? 2016. You probably didn't realize how significant Bitcoin was at that point, I assume. Otherwise, uh, I, I thought I, I made a good deal, right? Exactly. I bought it at 250 I sold it at 1000 yeah. a year and a half later, right? Yeah, and many of us have stories similar to that, and we've all learned through the pain, and hopefully those that are listening to this can learn. You don't want to sell your Bitcoin, or you can learn the hard way. You can learn from us, or you can learn the hard way. You mentioned the... Adding Bitcoin to a portfolio, you mentioned 84% being the efficient frontier, according to BlackRock. But you're mentioning here that just a portfolio for someone that's perhaps more conservative of 90% USD and 10% BTC had outperformed the S&P 500 over what, the past decade? Um, so I write, I am, so Fundstrat is our data provider, yeah. Tom Lee's company. Yeah. So I asked, um, you know, that team to like, you know, 
let's run the numbers. Let's mm -hmm. see, you know, if you don't want to, you know, if you want to opt out of the stock market, opt out of the bond market. And the point of this is that, you know, why do we need financial advisors in the first place? You know, I used to be a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. You know, people would come to me, what stock should I buy? You know, sure. what, what's the, you know, proper asset allocation? Yeah. And I was like, well, why do you need stockbrokers anymore? Why do you need financial advisors when you have Bitcoin? Yeah. So, you know, so let's figure that out. Yeah. What's, you know, how do we get the performance of the stock market? Yeah and not have the risk of the stock market. Yeah. And you the way you do that is you have a portfolio of 10% Bitcoin and 90% in cash. Right. And so if you're 90% in cash, your volatility is very low. Yeah. And your Bitcoin's very volatile. But that portfolio of 90% cash, 10% Bitcoin, rebalanced annually, mm -hmm. outperforms the stock market, outperforms the S&P 500. Over the past four years, the past eight years and the past 12 years. Mm. And so I did four, eight and 12 because that's a full Bitcoin having cycle, mm -hmm. right? So Bitcoin has a, you know, the, the reward of Bitcoin gets cut in half every, about every four years. Yeah. It's in reality, it's every 210,000 blocks yeah. and it takes 10 minutes to create a block. So that comes out to about four years. So about every four years. So I wanted to run the numbers every four years. That's a full cycle. Bitcoin. So over four, eight, and 12 years, Bitcoin, 10% Bitcoin, 90% cash outperforms the S&P 500. Yeah. So you don't need a financial advisor anymore. Yeah. Just 10% bit, well, 10% Bitcoin, 90% cash rebalance once a year. Yeah. That's all you have to do and save yourself that 1% management fee your financial advisor is charging you. Yeah. Cause the reason financial advisors have become so mainstream and everyone has to have one is because there hasn't been a sound savings, right? Okay. So you had to divert, again, you had to move further out along the risk curve, bonds, real estate, equities, et cetera, because you can't conserve purchasing power just in money. But now that you have sound money again, you can take a small portion of that and add to it unsound money actually. And this is, this is a bit tricky too, because so dollars are short-term purchasing power stable. Bitcoin is long-term purchasing power stable. And the inverse is also true, right? Dollars long-term purchasing power unstable to the downside. Right. Bitcoin's short-term purchasing power unstable due to the volatility and size of the asset. But by putting those two things together, you're basically doing a barbell strategy, mm -hmm. right? You're getting the low volatility of dollars and the high upside of Bitcoin. Um, Okay, I think we've covered a lot today. We've yeah. been through religion. We've been through uh, RFK and his Bitcoin policy. We've gone through the financial aspects of Bitcoin. I want to conclude with kind of a, a personal question. You're obviously someone that's fallen down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, there's many of us, right? More joining every day. It seems like people fall into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, but they don't come out. It's definitely a one direction thing. What does, let's say, what has this journey meant to you personally? Like, how has it changed your life? How has it changed the way you see the world? Um, obviously, it's got you putting a lot of skin in the game, producing the God Bless for Bitcoin documentary. Like, how would you describe your experience journeying into the Bitcoin rabbit hole for those that may have not yet embarked on that journey? It, it's made me pay more attention like, you know, when I was pre-Bitcoin, you know, I just, I didn't pay attention. You know, mm -hmm. I was focused on other things. 
And when you start to understand what money is, you realize that, you know, as David Bailey puts it in the movie, you're getting screwed, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, you know, I just feel like that, that wrong needs to be righted. Mm. And so that's my mission. Uh, My mission is to help educate people on how, you know, the reason that they're experiencing pain is because they're working so many hours mm-hmm. and they're still accumulating debt and they can't keep up. Mm-hmm. And people are like, you know, they're thinking to themselves, I'm doing everything right. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm working. I went to mm-hmm. college or yeah. I went to trade school and I'm being responsible and I still can't keep up. Yeah. And so they don't understand what's happening to them. So that's the point of the movie yeah. is this is what's happening. And it doesn't have to happen to you. Yeah. There's an alternative. You could opt out of that system. And, you know, you have a choice. So, you know, but you need to understand yeah. what's happening to you. And that's, you know, that, that's my goal is just to help educate people. Like, you know, you don't have to go through that pain. Yeah. Uh, you, there's, a, there's another system you could opt into. Yeah, that's... Um... It's a great point. I love the, your wife's term, bitvangelizing. Bitangelize. Bitangelizing. Yeah. Because that is one of the main features of Bitcoin is like once you start to understand, then you become, you obviously buy some of the asset to protect yourself. But then because of the social layer or the social dimension of money, you're also incentivized to spread the word. It's like, hey, well, I exited this scam. I'm now protecting myself. It's incentivizes me to tell more people about it because that actually makes the asset worth more and it makes human productivity increase the less people are getting scammed basically and so there's this massive virtuous cycle um and it yeah it's very almost surreal to participate in that process Mm -hmm. so that's why i had to ask you that question um mr estes thank you for doing this again thanks Uh, for having me great to see you in miami um We'll have the studio set up soon, so we'll have to do this again in the okay. in the home studio. Sounds good. Where can people find you on the internet? So the only um, social media I do is Twitter or X now. So my handle is Brian Estes thirty two, and then um, the company I you know I'm the CIO of is Off the Chain Capital. So we're a private investment fund, been around since two thousand sixteen, um, and you can just go to offthechain.capital, and there's a contact form there. And then the film, is that, does it have a website? Yeah, uh, the film is GodBlessBitcoin.movie. Beautiful. And that's, we're hoping to have it out um, in June. So, June it, was, it was supposed to be at the halving. The goal is the Bitcoin halving in April, but um, we want to make sure it's perfect. So, so we're looking in June now. Awesome. We're really looking forward to that one. Thank you again. Thank you. All right.